Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brennan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And in today's episode, we're talking about games that play fast. Uh, it's a What We Talk About episode. It's been a while since we've done one of these topical uh, explorations of an idea that relates to the games we play. So Jake and I are really excited to delve into this idea. Jake kind of conceived of, a, of this episode in a lot of ways, so I, I want to turn it over to him to give the overview. But I think the exciting thing about today's episode is that it's going to approach the topic and all the nuance that we normally approach the topic from. So we're kind of coming at it from a few different directions and teasing out what that really means. What does it mean to have a game that plays fast? Yeah, I think this is going to be almost like a throwback what we talk about episode in the sense that we sort of have a very broad topic. We're not diving into like a specific mechanism or a specific gaming term. We're really talking about games that play fast, what that means, and also literally games that are short. And I, I want to just take in kind of a consider the lobster approach old school decision space style where we just kind of riff on what that means to us, some of the thoughts we've been thinking about and to kick it off, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I've just been hearing a lot of conversation in our Discord and outside of it about sort of a demand for shorter and faster games. So I'm always hearing things like, this game overstayed its welcome, and I never hear this game was too short, almost ever. I also hear things like, oh, I like game X because it does everything that game Y does but in half the playing time. So my question when I hear those kind of things, is like, why is that good? Why is that preferred? Don't we enjoy playing games and therefore, you know, just having it less time to play that game isn't inherently a strength? So that's sort of what I'm hoping to dive into as a teaser in the rest of this discussion. Yeah, it sounds great. And I think, can I, I'll add one little thing, which is I'm really excited, Jake, to talk about, I think naturally by getting into both discussing fast games, like fast playing games, and also games that are fast, meaning like short games, we'll get into it discussing pace and flow of decisions in games in a way that maybe we haven't explored as deeply as we have in some of our other episodes. So I'm really excited to kind of dig into considerations around timing when it yeah. with regards to decisions in games too. Yeah, and what that means. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're certainly biting off more than we can chew here, but I can't wait to get into the discussion. Before we do that, however, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we did ask for reviews of this podcast and y'all delivered. So thank you. I think we've got three new reviews. So we'll read one over each of the subsequent episodes and maybe we'll get more. We can continue that streak. But today's review comes from Luke and is titled The Most Consistently Great Board Game Podcast. Five star reviews. Thanks, Luke, so much. And here is the review. For me, what separates Decision Space from the pack of other great board game podcasts is their consistency. Lots of podcasts deliver excellent week-to-week -week content that follows a singular format. However, Decision Space does that across several different formats, from their bread-and-butter single-game deep dives to their what-we-talk-about episodes, like we're doing today, covering different mechanics and genres, to event episodes that run down what they played at a con or a getaway weekend, to their one-off episodes, Jake and Brendan consistently provide depth and humor every time they record. Thanks again, Luke. That means so much to me and Brendan. We really appreciate it. Following up on a little bit of other housekeeping, in addition to the huge thank you to Luke for leaving that nice review, Luke is also one of our uh, Patreon supporters. And I want to let everyone know that periodically, you know, we do special things for those of you who provide financial support to this uh, show by supporting us on Patreon. 
Patreon. Uh, you can learn more about that if you would like to on decisionspacepodcast.com slash Patreon. Uh, but a cool thing that we have coming up for our patrons is that we recently ran a run of stickers. So we have two different types of stickers. One of them is the Decision Space Lost in Space Meeple but in foil. So it's this really cool sort of holographic style sticker that's a two two inch by two inch sticker that we're going to be sending out to all of our patrons uh, alongside a letter of thanks and a little sneak peek of what's to come in the upcoming year or really like in the upcoming 12 months on Decision Space since it's July. But then there's another sticker in there, which is just a, a classic square of our logo uh, that you could snag if you were interested. I, Jake and I just wanted to mention that because we don't, it's not something we get to do all the time. We're still a growing podcast and pretty small. Uh, so it feels like a momentous occasion for us. And we're really excited. So if you have any interest on getting in on that, uh, we just wanted to mention on the show that that's something that's coming up. And if you're listening to this contemporaneously when this episode releases, if you want to peek at our Patreon, uh, Patreon and uh, take a look if receiving a letter in the mail with some goodies uh, is something you'd be interested in. Uh, yeah. Take a look. Oh, and Jake, we're posting it on our Instagram. Yeah, so you can check out pictures of those stickers on our Instagram. And we'll probably always reprint our logo ones. But I think maybe the holographic ones, that could be like a collector's a item. Special and we could one. do a different type of thing next year. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And yeah, thanks, Brendan, for saying that. And just so y'all know, we know that our patrons are not supporting our show to get stuff. They're doing it because they appreciate the work we put into us. And, and it means so much to us, but it's still really nice to be able to do something for our patrons to show our gratitude. So if you want to support our show, please check out our Patreon and get in on this one of one sticker batch. All right, Brendan, let's transition. All right, Brendan, here we are in the discussion, what we talk about. We're talking about short games and games that play fast. So maybe we should start with kind of a conversation on why the appetite for shorter games might be growing and maybe, you know, why if, if it's not across the market, we're perceiving it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like kind of the hypothesis that you've presented, Jake, of like within the market of board gamers, there is a growing desire for games to play quickly or if, or to feel as if they're playing quickly, which I feel like in some ways, and we're going to present maybe an opinion that's a counterpoint to that, which I think will be helpful for filling out the discussion in a minute. Uh, but I think that that's really, it's kind of interesting to come at it from that frame because I've heard a lot of similar things to what you said too, uh, Jake, of people wanting kind of an efficient experience in terms of what they're playing, right? If something overstays its welcome, it's less likely to make it back to the table. And I think for me, a big reason why I'm drawn to fast playing games, one of them is just that they tend to be really engaging when you're playing them. If turns, if the game has a good sense of pace and flow around the table and it feels like it's moving fast, there's good energy. That's typically a more engaging experience, at least in the immediate moment than maybe a more epic game that has longer, more drawn out turns, which isn't to say that I'm not drawn to those sorts of experiences too, but to me, oftentimes those feel more like one-off things that I'm drawn to rather than kind of the bread and butter space of what I want to be playing day to day, week to week. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Another 
you know, a couple of reasons. I think part of this perception might be just specifically the waters we swim in, the people we're talking to on the decision space discord, which, you know, is a self-selecting group of people. Um, my perception is that it's a lot of white men like us, frankly, that are in their maybe 30s and up as the general age range. So perhaps also some of this conversation is coming from folks who are just at certain stage in life where maybe they got into board games 5, 10, 15 years ago uh, when they were younger and had more time to play long, in-depth games. But now they maybe have kids or you know more time-consuming work responsibilities that just make these shorter games fit into their life better than the two, three, four hour like big event games, that might be something they can only play once ever so often. So if a game can offer all the decisions and fun that they used to have playing Battlestar Galactica in a 45 minute game, then perhaps that just offers something that they can act that actually fits into their life better as a product. Totally. Which isn't to say also, of course, too, and I know you feel this way, Jake, like we value all of our decision space listeners and maybe just who's active in our discord isn't totally representative of the audience overall who like typically I feel like the classic decision space listener is just anyone who has fun thinking critically about game. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, you know, I say that not as a strength, but as a blind spot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think another big part of that too, Jake is this desire, this quest to experience more, right? Like, there's this, I don't know if this is a true I, a true sentiment or a true feeling, but I think there is a, in some real terms, this like, well, if I could play two games and have them feel like full experiences and fulfilling, or one, maybe I'd rather experience two different things. So I think a desire for faster games is maybe a, a byproduct of the fact that there's so many games to be interested in that to compete in the marketplace, right, for publishers even thinking of what games they want to sign a game that plays fast and plays quickly is an asset because it's easier for people to fit that into their collections because it's going to hit the table more often so it makes for a more compelling product so perhaps faster games one trend and right there's lots of different ways that people approach selling games there's party games there's epic games there's all these different ways in between but maybe it's the sort of market pressures kind of forcing game experiences to play a little bit faster on average than maybe they did in the 90s when there was less publishing competition. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about sort of the pressure for that first play to be great. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe there's something about a shorter runtime overall when you're developing a game is going to be easier mm. to smooth out that play experience than if you're talking about something much longer, heavier, and perhaps more sort of unwieldy to, to really, I mean, find time to get play testers to play something three or four hours a bunch of times. That's like a huge challenge. And you can also picture that in a lot of these heavier games, there might be more edge cases or weird game states that the game could possibly get into than something more constrained that could, you know, potentially lead to a bad first play. And then somebody just puts it on the trade pile, never to be played again. Yeah. I feel like another constraint that came to mind that I'm really interested to get your take on Jake is that it, for these sort of like epic, slow, big games where you have sprawling turns and you're touching tons of pieces and there's lots of things going on the table, something like a feast for Odin maybe, is that partially I think some of the appeal of experiences like that are like, wow, this is so epic and grand. 
And ultimately, if part of the appeal is that it's so epic and grand and experiencing that epicness, just like how massive the game is, how much it's demanding of you as a player, even Ark Nova comes to mind a little bit for something like that, though it's on slightly a different scale, but a heavy, heavy-ish game that takes a long time to play nonetheless, that it's it's tough to kind of chase that high of playing a, a huge game experience over and over again for me at least where like the the excitement of playing my the heaviest game i've ever played it's tough to fulfill that over and over and over again as you play more and more heavy games and you might still enjoy those heavy games and it might be the sole thing that someone is interested in and it's just playing heavy games but i found for me the appeal of playing a heavy game alone for its heaviness has waned and now i'm more interested in playing a heavy game for the rich decisions it offers or something like right totally right yeah. yeah, and I think just a practical riff on that point is that for me, it's a lot harder to keep rules in my head of a heavy mm. game. So if I have a shelf full of board games, you know, and 25 of them maybe are mid medium weight to light, you know, I could keep that in my head as easy as like five truly heavy games with a lot of rules edge cases, which is maybe another practical reason that it's more difficult for a a long slow playing game, I guess, to use the terms we're talking in this episode about to fit in my collection. It's just a bit more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. It's more demanding. It's tougher to come back. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a good point. So this is a bunch of reasons why you know we think that there might be hypothetically an appetite for shorter games growing in the hobby the pendulum you think of is swinging that way uh compared to where games were at in the late 90s early 2000s and we'll talk about you know some of those games later and what makes them different and, and kind of great in a different way so the case being made is that the appetite of modern hobby board gamers is skewing faster yep so i pitched this uh discussion topic to a friend of the show jamie stegmeyer uh ask if he'd be interested in coming on and it didn't work out uh schedule wise this week uh, but he did offer some thoughts and a lot of his thoughts were really pushing back against this concept and this is jamie stegmeyer of stonemeyer games too right publisher of scythe and wingspan yeah. and rolling realms so i was interested in getting the publisher perspective on it if, if that's something that he's thinking about uh and he would basically really push back one of the quotes from the conversation we had was uh, jamie i'm very hesitant to say that there's a trend of people looking for faster shorter games i think they're just looking for game for each game to be the right length for that game and he pointed out you know a bunch of other heavier bigger hits like you know a game like arc nova that's had a lot of commercial success and even point out wingspan as a game that has a slightly longer playtime and says he gets comments and you know questions all the time about people wishing that wave uh, that wingspan had an extra round to play it's like a round too short so he you know i made that same case to him about nobody ever says they wish this game was longer and he's like well actually there's a lot of folks who think that about wingspan yeah absolutely and then obviously there's games like gloomhaven that has sustained multiple massive boxes that represent not the fastest playing or the fastest gameplay experience war of the ring has had this massive i would say like resurgence in recent years where people have realized how amazing sort of a deep thematic 
marathon type experience can be, or even the longevity of something like Spirit Island, which came out in 2017 and has had tons of additional content added in the form of expansions. That's not a fast playing game or a quick game, right? It's not, it doesn't play all that fast turn to turn. There's a lot to consider, a lot to think about, a lot of options. And, and then it also just, it's going to take an hour or more to play no matter what, probably yeah. longer, you know? Yeah. So I add that perspective too, just, just to say that, you know, while this is something that we are observing, uh, or specifically I am observing amongst our community and kind of the circles that I'm in game-wise. And it's also worth pointing out that when I asked the same question on our Discord, not very many people pushed back against it. Yeah, It seemed yeah. that mo there were a few people who did say similar comments to what Jamie put forward here. Uh, but it seemed like by and large, people were noticing and feeling the same way about quick to play games. Uh, but clearly that's not a universal belief and a publisher perspective on that, you know, probably is worth a lot of consideration too. I think it's interesting too, Jake, that Jake, uh, that Jamie does say, I think they're just looking for each game to be the right length for that game, uh, which to me almost speaks to the fact that like you can have long games and what does that mean for it to be the right length? I think a yeah. big piece of that, right, is that I, it means I'm feeling engaged throughout the course of the game. I'm intrigued by the decisions being offered to me as a player. And the arc is compelling enough to, to make me feel like it's a good use of my time to be sitting at the table, whether it's for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 50 minutes, or three or four hours, right? And I think a, a big part of that is what this episode is going to be about, of sort of how do games, no matter what their length is, make us feel like they're playing quickly, regardless of the amount of time that they play in. Yeah. So let's get into that, Brendan, and transition towards what makes games feel fast. Because there are games that have a three-hour runtime that you feel as though just flash by. And then there are games that are maybe 20 or 30 minutes and it, it feels like it drags, right? So maybe we can think of some examples of that and also why that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the thing that came to mind immediately for me, Jake, of what makes a game feel fast, the, the number one thing that contributes is quick turns, short, quick turns. So games that only offer the player one, one decision or one choice and surrounding that there's relatively few considerations tend to to whip around the table a lot more quickly those games oftentimes will have like sequencing decisions or other considerations that are going on to add complexity to the game while keeping the structure around the decisions themselves relatively simple and then on like the complete other end of the spectrum right are like the late 90s type action point system games that we talked about in Kramer and Kiesling games of the Mass Trilogy, where you have 10 action points that represent potentially, you could use them to take 10 different actions all within your turn. So it's this really dense turn structure where you have to puzzle out all of the different options that you could be doing and the implications of how those mix and match that lead to much larger, uh, longer turns that tend to make the game feel a little bit slower one because it takes longer for it to get back to you two because on a turn to turn decision pace the rate at which you're making those decisions also can feel a little bit slower as you have to consider all these different ways in which they might combine yeah maybe one way we could even think about that sort of objectively is if you take the length of the game and divide it by the number of turns that each player gets, mm -hmm. right? So a game that 
or even the number of decisions if it's like a simultaneous play right game. if it's a but simultaneous yeah. thing but you know like a game like uh, uh castles of burgundy right it's we you can really easily do that math and see like okay this game is going to take two hours to play uh, everybody gets 25 turns okay and that's kind of a game that some people feel like can drag myself included can drag a little bit around the table while you're waiting uh, for everybody to take those turns and there's just quite you know what I mean like that trade-off doesn't feel as quick as a game that gives you maybe 25 turns in 40 minutes yeah it's kind of like a quick a quick math way of doing that I thought about that because going to gamers ranch I was talking with a friend of the show Paul Solomon about some of the games I wanted to play and I, I was interested to introduce him to Torres, even though I thought maybe he might not like it because he didn't like El Grande at the last Gamers Ranch. And I, I was like, I'm going to make you play another one of these Kramer games. And uh, he's he's like, well, and he basically said that. He was like, well, a quick way to to guess if I'll like it or not is if you just like do the time play divide by turns. And I was like thinking about it. It's like, okay, probably Torres takes about, you know, an hour to 90 minutes and you get mm, like nine moves. <laughs> he's like yeah i'm not i don't want to play that which is you know it's kind of interesting too because there's a lot more sub decisions within any number of one of those turns but i think what you literally get nine turns yeah and i think that's really interesting that you kind of presented that as a shorthand almost jake like it kind of strips out some of the complexity of like how much is going on on any given turn because experientially at when you're playing a mass a mass trilogy or series game like torres we kind of count that as one like the nine turns thing you feel that more than the fact that you're making sub decisions on your turn like it like intellectually i actually it's 10 turns but yeah is it 10 you know what i'm saying too right like intellectually i'm like oh no but you're making so many turns so it's this like really decision dense game but ultimately when you're sitting there at the table playing it it might not always feel that way and i think there's been times where i'm playing to call or kuzco where i'm i take a really quick turn and it's like well I'm going to be back to my turn in around 20 minutes here. So uh, let me I, go. See I mean, if 20 I minutes, that's brutal. It is, you know, it's okay, 15. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But that's still rough. But yeah, I mean, I think, I do think downtime in a game is something that can be just like a complete killer of joy. Yep. Now, it doesn't have to be for everybody because El Grande is another game like that, right? You You have nine, you know, phases or whatever over the whole course of the game yeah, nine rounds be, where yeah. you'll be activating one of the cards not very many moves but i in there's enough to think about that while other people are puzzling out what they're gonna do right i you know it's just like for me to like exist in and like luxuriate within that decision space is fine yeah. uh, and i feel the exact same way about torres a game that i've really come to enjoy quite a bit and getting to play that experience that around the table live it does take a little bit to get back to your turn but everything people are doing like you're kind of factoring in like oh they put that block there that actually shortens my movement path to get one of my you know night pieces somewhere else on the boards right so you can you're kind of constantly able to engage and and you know consider and pre-plan your turn in a really fun and satisfying way but it doesn't have the same guardrails as a more modern design where it's like, no, every 30 seconds, we're actually going to need you to, to take an action, right? Like yeah. that forces you in a way to, uh, to engage in a way that kind of like older games, like put more onus on the player to do that. Because by the same token, if, if everybody's not engaged, right. And then all of a sudden it's somebody's turn, they're like, Oh, what do I want to do? Like that is when the turn structure becomes a problem. 
And I think that one interesting thing about this sort of dichotomy that we're building, Jake, right, is we're talking about games with that offer you lots of decisions fairly quickly. So the cumulative impact of each decision on average is probably going to be lower on the, the final outcome of what you're doing versus games that are offer you fewer decisions, but m- those fewer decisions end up ultimately each one being more individually impactful on the overall outcome of your position in the game on average relatively. I think that's an interesting dichotomy. And one thing about it is that your AP is probably going to be less in a game that offers you an AP there, right? Analysis, paralysis, time spent making a decision in one of those games is probably going to be less in the game where you have many low impact decisions or turns compared to the game where you have a few really impactful decisions. Because as a player that you might not be thinking about it intellectually, when you're playing one of those games where you only get nine turns, you feel the the sort of the behest of the game kind of calling you to say like there's a lot of impact going on in each of these decisions be careful be considered make it clearly whereas sometimes when you're playing some of those faster playing low impact decision games with just more decisions throughout the course of play you feel a little bit looser in terms of I don't need to be exactly optimal every time because I know that as long as I'm good on average enough, it's going to get there. Like the the math of large numbers comes into play. And it's a psychological trick, I think, but an important one given to how we experience the games and why we might feel they play fast. It's yeah. like it comes with the freedom of like excusing ourselves from finding the true optimal move just a little bit, I think. I think that's a part of it. I think a, maybe a bigger part is like what, actual like mechanisms does the game have that limits your agency on the turn i think the the term i hear thrown around a lot is sort of micro turns Mm. as being like the main mode of designing a game now right like nobody's doing 10 action points on your turn anymore it's like one or maybe two things you can do and then on to the next player and it feels like that's how games are designed today by and large but that doesn't mean that the turns have to be quick, right? In Arc Nova, you choose one card to activate, but there's a lot of considerations and things you can do in, decisions for in sure. the course of activating that action. And, you know, whereas another game, right, it's just like, I'm trying to think of uh, a good example, like Cascadia, right? You just have such a hard and fast, like, limit on what you can do on your turn. It's, you know, all you see all of the, you know, available tiles right there in front of you. And then you take it and you place it, bingo, bango, bongo, that's it. Yeah, Cascadia came up for me, Jake, as, as an interesting example too, especially when you're playing at two player where it's a little bit, uh, it moves more quickly around the table. It's a faster playing game because you have more turns in the same rough period of time typically. Cascadia does this interesting thing where it keeps, another thing that can make a game play fast is the number of considerations or options on your given turn is relatively constrained. So Cascadia, right, you have this flexibility where you're always adding terrain tiles, but you're adding animal tiles on top of those as play continues. But you only ever have four open available spaces that you could add animals to because of how the tile laying system works and you're always adding new animals to the board. And I think that system does such a great job of giving you more options as the game goes on of where you could put your new terrain tiles when you get them, but keeping the decision around where you put the animals relatively constrained. 
And to juxtapose that with something like another tiling game, Kuzco, going back to the Master Trilogy again, that game's really open. And though there are some some constraints, you have to put tiles next to tiles that have already been placed on the board when you're laying tiles in your turn. It's so much less constrained than Cascadia that you just really feel the the broad openness of that and you can really sit there puzzling out your turns and both those experiences are rewarding in different ways one another trick of cascadia the sort of personal tiling game twist that you you see this in cascadia or games like a feast for odin that you don't see in shared space games uh like Cusco is the kind of like i make my decisions i draft the tiles that i want and then if the magic circles appropriately like on the same page you can kind of just like figure out where the tiles go before your turn comes around again. Mm -hmm. Like you've already made the decision of taking it. So, so long as you're just kind of focusing on your own puzzle and not waiting to see what someone else does, you can use the downtime that you have where someone else is taking your turn to like finalize your decision. So it gives you this like fuzziness between players' turns. Feast for Odin actually also like encourages this behavior, right? It says like, just feel free to like futz with your tiles while someone else is taking their turn. And I think that's a really great way to make a game feel like it's playing fast with this kind of fuzzy turn structure. Yeah, I think another big thing that impacts our perception of how fast a game plays is the search that's present in the decision space. So, so what do you mean by that? I mean, how much you feel like you're on when it becomes your turn, how much you are searching yep. over your hand and board combined in order to make to find a, an optimal move. Yeah, or not even optimal, but just like a good move. Right. Sure. There's a, a different kind of thing like that comes up in a game like Five Tribes or T-Call where you feel like I could sit here and search for 15 minutes, right? Because there's so many different possible things you can do. But I'm talking about just like kind of more like an average game. And I think Cascadia is a game that has like medium to low search because things aren't going to change that much between, you know, your turn and the next. Like there might be new tiles obviously are going to be coming out, but your board is going to stay the same. You have the same like things, animal spaces you can place on. Uh, And especially if you start looking, you know, incrementally as it's going around the table, by the time the person in front of you goes, you know, only one of those tiles, probably unless they like wipe them or something is going to be changed. Yep. Versus how about a game like Carcassonne, an older game again, where even though it's really a micro turn, right, you're playing one tile and placing maybe adding a meeple, maybe adding a meeple if you want to it. Because the game has you, you know, with the rules as written, and some people kind of house rule this, to, which I think also says a lot about kind of how it in, impacts the experience of play. You're supposed to draw your tile on your turn, and now you have a brand new tile, and you're looking all over the entire board to see where it can possibly fit and where it might, like, you know, create some advantageous play. Uh, just the simple fact of having you draw that tile on your turn versus maybe at the end of your turn is something that like has a dramatic effect on the amount of search that you have to do on your actual turn which is the thing that creates downtime for other players you know i i find when people are taking their turn i'm interested in what they're doing but i'm not interested when they're just sitting there 
looking at the board, not doing anything. Not doing anything. Uh, thinking about what they'll do. Yeah. I think another good example of that, Jake, is in Keyflower, which also has a relatively simple turn structure, place one or more meeples to bid for a tile or activate a tile. But So that's really simple. You could make one decision on your turn. But there's so many considerations. Mm -hmm. The search is so high, right? I can use any tile in my board. Uh, I can use any tile in anyone else's board or village. And I can also be bidding on any of the tiles that have come out for auction in that round. And I could also use any of those. So there's so much to consider that even though there's this really simple turn structure, it, it can not be a fast playing game. Yeah. Arc Nova is another one that I think has a different type of search, but a pretty high amount of search because your like eyes are like flicking from your hand to the board to like the objectives to your hand again, because, you know, to then see like what actions do I even have available? It's like, okay, so then I want to play this animal. You know, I have my animal action ready to go. I'm going to play it. Now I'm looking at my animal card in hand. Do I have an enclosure that can fit that? Yes. Do I have, can, you know, the right kind of association with the, you know, continent for it? No. So now I need to look at my association card. Great. That one's in a position where I can get the appropriate association for the animal. Oh, wait, that association zoo thing is like not available. Somebody else has already taken it this round. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And now I'm like back and forth. So it's just like, it's almost like a different type of search. It's not just like literally looking at the board to see what the best move is. It's like has something more to do with like sequencing. Uh, and I like the fact that you're constantly having to like go back and reference different things everywhere creates a high level of search for me in that one too. Yeah, because you're moving down the decision tree, not just across it. Like in Carcassonne, you're typically just like moving across that broad set of options presented to you, but you're not always thinking about the implications of if I do this, then this, then this. Whereas in a game like Arc Nova, you got to go down, you got to go across the tree and then down the tree, two or three or four decisions. And there's a, it just explodes, right? The common torques of that. I think another thing, Jake, that comes to mind of a game uh, that can make a game feel slow rather than fast is how procedural a game is. And so what I mean by this is how many, how much is your turn just like decided by uh, what you're doing or ruled by procedure or like how free is your turn and flexible? So to give an example, broom service doesn't always feel fast because there's a lot of people who might be involved on a given uh, sort of move, partially because of the card play mechanism, right? Like I pick the card that I want to play, and then I decide if I'm uh, brave or cowardly. When I play it, then I have to wait and see if anyone, I have to go to each player at the table. They say if they are also that, and they can choose to declare brave if they want. So, right, there's like a lot of checks going on to resolve the consequences of a given decision. They can make the game feel slow to kind of see if, what I think is going to happen if it happens, right? Like, does it resolve more or less? So there's sometimes that procedure can bog a game down and feel like it's playing a little bit slower, even though the pace of decisions, if you took out that procedure, might be kind of high. I was just, that's a great point. I was just listening to the Game Brain podcast, another fun podcast in the board game space. Uh, and I haven't played this game, but that conversation at Broom Service really mirrors their conversation of Sheriff of Nottingham, mm, uh, which sure. they sort of describe as like a really fun, like party game concept, but then it's so bogged down by every, you, the whoever's the sheriff, like going to every single person and like having like an individual, like kind of back and forth with them about, is it contraband? Is it not? 
Uh, and, you know, the overall experience for them, paraphrasing them, is that it's just a game that plays too slow for what it is. Yeah. Another th- consideration of what can make a game feel really fast too, Jake, is right how much planning is available to the player in a given game, right? So like short term, how how much are the strategic implications of what I'm doing versus the tactical implications of what I'm doing on a given turn important? So a game that comes to mind to me for a game that plays really fast is Findorf, the Friedman Freeze engine building game that we talked about a couple months ago on the show. That game just whips around the table and you part of that is you make one decision on your turn but another part of that is you are pursuing the the main way that you get points in this game is building buildings within Findorf and you have a hand of building cards that you're trying to build and essentially that sets up the sequence of how you're going to pursue building things and because it sits in your hand and you know your available options at the start you can at the start of the game kind of sequence out what your plan is to score all of those points and then when you're pursuing the the next building in your build order, that just kind of becomes your target and you're like dead focused on it in a way that it's really clear. And you might pivot, you might move to something else, but you're typically so focused on your next objective that it moves really, really quickly. Yeah, a great example of game, a game that does something really similar that's going to be familiar to a large section of our audience is Ticket to Ride, where you're plan is like i want to like complete this path and that means i need this color of cards and likely in ticket to ride you're collecting like three or four or five different colors of cards all at once and once you've made that decision that i'm collecting these colors your turn becomes so simple it's just like do i have enough to play the track i want no okay i'm grabbing cards in the colors that i want and everybody's kind of doing that right and it just makes it play so fast around the table i'm so glad that you brought ticket to ride up jake because i feel like ticket to ride is simultaneously both a game that plays fast and a slow game because in some ways it espouses this like earlier design ethos where the base game ticket to ride is kind of long like the amount of stuff you need to accomplish to make the end game happen just in terms of raw time played takes up like quite a while like it's not the fastest playing game like an hour right? an hour yeah yeah okay. but given the relative impact of what you're doing and the quickness of the turns oftentimes i felt maybe that game isn't as fast as it could be right it's an interesting one because yeah i kind of agree with you but i i think it's because like the decisions for me aren't all that satisfying. So even though everything else we're talking about here, about games that play fast is present, right? It's like quick turns. It like whips around the table. Like it's just the actual like decision making that's going into it is almost too simple to be satisfying, which makes it kind of just like, yeah, it's going quick, but it's like, yep, I just take two more cards. Yep, I just take two more cards. Yep, I just take two more cards. Okay, I'll play this track. Which goes back to that quote from Jamie again, right? Games that are the right length for for that game. Mm-hmm. A huge part of, I think, what makes us feel like a game is the right length for that game is the complexity of the game versus the relative rewarding nature of the impact of the decisions you're making, right? Like, how fun is it to make decisions in this space? How interesting is it to make decisions in this game versus how long it takes to play? So that's why really long war games that take four hours can be really interesting and meaningful even though they don't play fast and they're not fast playing games because the consequences of the decisions you're making can be so interesting and the long-term strategic planning can be really interesting. 
but yeah, that's just like the other side of the coin, right? Right. 18xx, right? I mean, yeah, sure. that's something since we're the trained game podcast, we know <laughs> a lot about. Oh no. <laughs> and uh, clear, but clearly, like the people who are really into 18xx are playing these games that are four or five hours long and loving every minute of it because of how engaging the decisions are. Though nobody, I don't typically hear people saying, "Yeah, you'd love 1849." Like it plays so fast around the table. Yeah. And I think part of that is because a lot of. They're probably, I like hesitate to say that because I'm sure there are 18xx games that are like known for that, but not a hallmark of the genre. Totally. And I think a part of that too is those games tend to be fairly procedural and they include auctions. A lot of auctions are procedural, right? Something goes up for auction, then you take turns depending on the nature of the auction, making a bid, and it could go around the table for a long period of time. And maybe as we are kind of building this case that there is this trend towards faster playing games, maybe one sort of example piece of evidence we could point to is how the relative fall of auction games as of late, I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that, but maybe one of the things is is they don't tend to play as fast as other games, right? The impact of the decisions that are there. Though there are, of course, exceptions, right? Like Raw is a pretty fast playing auction game that I find to be really engaging and to play pretty quickly as well. But you're so right. I think auctions are a really interesting thing to talk about in the context of this conversation because, yeah, we definitely have seen, I think, a decline of auction games in the hobby, though maybe we're now seeing the pendulum swinging back that way with like how successful it appears to me that the raw reboot relaunch by 25th Century Games is. But there are a game, you're right, that they typically are a little bit longer because of the procedural nature. And also they're games that famously have a difficult first play because it's really hard to have, you know, make informed auction decisions the first time you're playing an auction because you just don't know yet what the relative value of things are, right? You don't know how long the game is going to take. Like what's this going to be worth at the end? You kind of have to just budget the first time and then play it again. And now you're actually kind of playing the game. Yep, And that doesn't really necessarily fit in with what I think we're thinking of as like the market for game design today. Yeah. I think another question that I kind of have for you, Jake, or that I've, and and that I'm thinking about is in terms of fast playing games, do you think that there's any degree to which like the, one of the things that can make a game feel like it plays fast is that the, the pacing isn't always the same. So I'm thinking of a game where like, if you just made the exact same decision every single turn and there was exactly the same number of considerations and it was almost exactly as difficult to make that decision every turn, would that still feel like it played fast and would it feel like it was the right length compared to a game where some of the turns are really fast and you know exactly what you're going to do and other turns you have to think a little bit more and and you're doing a little bit more strategic planning for the next leg. To me, I feel like what I'm describing the second piece there is kind of more in line with something like Findorf, where there's actually this really interesting ebb and flow to the pacing that right. keeps me engaged because it's more dynamic. Than something like Architects of the West Kingdom. And I feel like that is a game that has like very monot- like a, just a very flat decision space from start sure. to finish. And I do think while you know it is a game that typically goes around the table pretty quick, it has worn me out a little bit playing on the table where I feel mm. like this could have maybe just ended just a little bit quicker, even though it's a game I do enjoy. And I wonder part of it's that, I mean, I 
I also wonder if part of it is just like time flies when you're having fun. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know? right. Yeah. No, that's a great axiom to, to bring out in this episode. And there's something to be said too, for like architects of the West kingdom. We've talked about, we've compared it to other kind of like pop media, right? We've talked about maybe it's kind of like call of duty or maybe it's like the Marvel movies. And I think that w- within those types of, within those relative uh, sort of types of media, film and games and genres, they're both like very action driven. And I think that if you watch a film or play a video game or read a book, that's just all breakneck action all the time, that actually gets really exhausting really quickly and stops being engaging really quickly too. Like you want a dynamic flow of pacing and texture and difficulty of decisions. At least I found to keep it feeling relatively engaging. Yeah. I think, I think that's right on. And like Cascadia has those moments where like all of a sudden all the tiles are wiped or all sure. the animals are wiped right before you go. And you're kind of like, oh no, but then all this, like, but that's really engaging. You're like, now what am I going to do on my turn? And yeah. even if that makes the game slow down for a beat, it pulls everybody in because everybody's looking at all the yep. new animals that have come out of the bag or whatever. It's fun to solve a fresh puzzle too, yeah. which that totally accomplishes. Yeah. I, Trick-taking games are another genre that I wanted to mention, Jake, that feel pretty fast playing in some cases. And I think the downside of this kind of links into what we were just talking about is some trick-taking games, you hear this feedback that your moves felt programmed, right? Because of the following mechanism and because of the nature of your hand. At some point in the game, it's like, well, I just kind of was playing out my cards as I was forced to. I wasn't making many interesting decisions, which can be a downside of it playing too fast and kind of feeling programmed. But I think on the other side is it's it's fun to get a hand of cards, watch it sort of diminish down. And it's relatively a quick decision. Like what what should I play next is is quick. Yeah. Trick taking occupies an interesting spot for me. I'm not really knowledgeable about the genre, but two, two things I want to say. One, I feel like when I play a trick taking game, nothing is accomplished. Right. <laughs> so I, I do think there's something to Can like you say what you mean about it. What I, I totally mean, know what you mean. What I yeah. mean is like if I play Ticket to Ride at the end of the game, I've built tracks across the whole board. Yeah. But if I spend an hour playing a trick taking game, it's like I've got 40 points and Brendan has 150 points and that's it. Right. Because we're just picking up we the didn't cards, build anything. shuffling yeah. them. And the other thing about trick taking games that makes them feel particularly not fast to me is though is that they're always like, we'll play a, ga- a trick-taking game and it's fun and we get to the end and they're like, great, now we just do that five more times. And I'm like, yeah. we what? <laughs> and we're going to play to 500 points. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah, right, exactly. And then now you're in that territory of like, yeah, all the decisions are fast, but they're all kind of the same, you know? And I think the thing that's changing is like your understanding of the system. And, and that right. can be really engaging and fun. But again, that's another kind of case I think where it's an older style of game, right? Without those same guardrails that a lot of more modern, streamlined, elegant games that that kind of put you on rails to to experience the change and the growth and the fun. And trick-taking games, that's like on you to kind of be... I feel like trick-taking games make, are like, you better be smart. If you're not like smart, you're going to have a hard time like getting much out of this. And I don't know. That, that's was, my trick-taking game rant. I was going to say, you know, like the language I was right about to you is when you said you have to be smart is you have to develop that part of your brain for it, right? right? Like it's a, it's a new, you're making new neural connections. And until you do that, playing a long trick taking game, though, the play of it might feel fast. 
the overall game might feel slow, but the better you get at the game is such a great illustrative example of all the things we're trying to talk about, I think, is the more you understand how nuanced the decisions are, even in like a game like Spades, a, a sort of like classic trick-taking game, the more the you're going to find the decisions you're making in the course of that long play of spades really engaging and rewarding so to you the turns are going really fast around the table the decisions are feeling really interesting and the game length it feels like the perfect length right you're staying engaged the whole time because the the time you're investing and the impact of the decisions is great but if you haven't built those neural connections yet and that piece of your brain just isn't there yet that game might feel really slow because it's like what am i doing i'm just like slinging cards like yeah. I, I feel unmoored like someone help me teach me how to play this and when you compare that to Ticket to Ride, you know, which is, I think, a good example of just sort of like a very successful in the market kind of like hobby board game, gateway game, you don't have to be smart to accomplish a lot. You have to be smart to win. You know, I'm not saying there's no skill in Ticket to Ride, but no matter what, at the end of the game, like you've built a bunch of tracks, like yeah. you've accomplished a lot on the board. And I think that's fun, right? It's kind of like the game being like, it's holding your hand in a way that trick-taking games typically do not. Yep. I think another game that kind of falls into this category, but in a different way, Jake, of the like, look at we accomplished type thing is uh, challengers actually. But a piece of that is sometimes I found in simultaneous play games, whether it's like challengers or seven wonders, where there's lots of stuff happening around you and you don't always know exactly what's happening is that that can give you the psychological perception of like, wow, so much is happening around me. I'm a part of this bigger thing. When even if in both of those games, they're drafting games with relatively few high impact decisions that I think can feel kind of slow, but if you're playing, especially challengers, like there's an energy to the procedure of that game that makes it feel pretty fast. And there's an energy of being around lots of people and seeing lots of things happen that make it feel like there's a lot going on in the game that to me makes it feel quick. And also the structure of that game, the like waiting for my next tournament game, figuring out who my opponent's going to be, the just getting the new cards and the deck building decisions. I just feel like it, it's always pushing and interesting to see what you're going to do next. And there's a little social pressure too, in terms of like, I got to get to my next match. I have to get to my next match. I think there's a big like, I think you're saying this, but to put a finer point on it, there's a big narrative and story component mm. to making a game feel fast or not. You don't, it's hard to tell yourself a story in spades. I mean, maybe it's like yeah. I was down a lot at the beginning and I came back strong, but then lost at the end or whatever. Or, sure. you know, it was a comeback win. In Challengers, we did a whole card game tournament with like a grand championship match in an hour. Yeah. And I'm thinking about other games like, shoot what's it called like take seize rome in 20 minutes oh caesar seize rome in 20 minutes the paul amore game right and that's like literally telling you in the title of the game like you're gonna you're gonna do this whole story in 20 minutes yeah great you know example. it's it's literally like marketing it using this terminology of like games that play fast yeah that's a great example jake i think azul is actually another good example of a, a fast playing game or game that plays fast it's not always the the quickest game but because there's a, a really good sense of pacing and flow to any given round right you're gonna you're gonna pick five things and on your turn you're just gonna pick one color so it tends to move pretty quickly especially later on in the game as the the blocks are falling of the consequences of everyone's communal communal decisions as the tiles get pushed to the center to me that's a perfect example of this game with really good pacing that even though a play of it 
it, it could be, you know, it's typically five rounds. That's how you have to fill in a whole horizontal row. It could be six or seven rounds, depending on how it goes. I find that I feel it's a pretty fast playing game. Yeah. No, I think I think a good, a good example and, you know, a lot of the kind of lighter, more abstract games that we recommend, I think, also fit well here. King Domino is another one that has fast turns and you're building a whole kingdom, yeah. you know, in 15 minutes or whatever it is. Uh, which is really satisfying or seven wonders duel. It takes a little longer to play, but you're like going through, you know, three ages of building up all this stuff. Dual games are another good example, actually. Be- yeah. But it's kind of a trick because the trick is just like, there'll be less downtime. So yeah, it'll it's less be faster player. because it's only two of you. Yeah. yeah. But I point. think it's a good example as like a, a point in support. Well, let's close out the episode. We're not done yet because we still need to talk about some games that play slow and why and i'm here to say i you know games that play fast are appealing to me definitely but as i've explored more of the really the mass trilogy game right like i Mm -hmm. really like to call is a game uh that is slow as hell on the table as you're waiting for your turn to go but i've still like really enjoyed my experience of it and that's a big part of the reason i wanted to talk about this like you know, do we not like games? Like, is it not fun to spend 90 minutes or two hours like playing this great classic game? Why do we always have to be rushing to squeeze like two things in in that time? And I think the short answer is we don't. So I want to talk about- We don't like games? No, we don't have to always be oh, yeah, yeah. rushing to squeeze two games in that are, you know, 45 minutes each. Sometimes we can just like chill and play a 90 minute game. And if there's a little bit of downtime, like that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, we'll I want to. I love of mice and men, and I also love the grapes of wrath. Both two amazing books by John Steinbeck that are offering really different things. Yeah, and I totally get that example. Um, but <laughs> what I was gonna say, there are slow games that feel slow, and it's a big <laughs> problem. And I've had two recent experience with games where I was just like, "Holy freaking cow!" Is this ever going to end? Are we naming names? And both of them shared an important mechanic, which is a real-time timer. Interesting. And those two games are Millennium Blades, where you have like 10-minute rounds to like do your deck construction. And if you get done, or maybe it's like more, whatever it is, crazy long amount of time (laughs) and you're just like literally done and you just like have like oh great now there's like six minutes i'm looking at this timer to do nothing and the other one is sidereal confluence which also has real-time trading rounds and if you're done there like i don't know there's something that makes sitting around and waiting and having downtime feel excruciatingly long when other players are frantically doing stuff in real time yeah. And you're yeah. sitting there doing nothing and being done with it. And it's just like, that's brutal. So I just wanted to bring that up as like a slow game as a mechanic. It seems like a real time thing is a mechanic that'd be like, oh, this is a fast game because it has a real time element. It's like if that real time element isn't tuned to always feel way too short, then it is something that just like balloons the experience of playtime. Yeah. yeah. And can make the game feel way longer than it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. At least to to you, who's, right. who's playing it in the shorter time. So interesting examples of games that play fairly slow, but are actually games that Jake and I love, which I feel like we both felt it was important to give some of these examples because a lot of this has been this like exploration of fast playing games. 
but we which is tend- generally good. Yeah. But there, I think there is a time and a place for other modes of game design. Yeah. Like we like diversity of experience. Yep. And I don't think that every I'm actually kind of like my thing is like I'm pushing back on like elegance being the number the one thing that everybody should be developing their games towards. I totally. think sometimes rough edges and different developmental goals besides elegance and cleanness can be valid and create really unique and interesting games. And I hope that the pendulum someday starts swinging back away from yeah. that just because we have such a saturation of these elegant games that play in 45 to 75 minutes now. Yeah, and now we need more Moby Dicks. We need more, you know, Anna Karenina, all, all of Brothers Karamazov, all that stuff, the long stuff. Farewell to arms. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but anyway, a, a game that came to mind, the Moby Dick of MOBAs, if you will, is Guards of Atlantis 2 is a slow playing game that Jake and I have played recently that we both really love. And I'll talk about why it's a slow playing game for me. Uh, a huge part of it is what you just talked about, actually, with Millennium Blades, is you all are kind of making these simultaneous choice decisions. And there's no set timer in that game, but we oftentimes you'll finish making your decisions about the cards, the upgrades you're going to make or whatever, or the cards you're going to play before other people. And then you just have sheer downtime that feels wasted. And you make in Guards of Atlantis 2 relatively few high impact decisions. And those decisions end up being tremendously interesting and rewarding and that like reward the player for thinking about them. And I, I will say if you make the right decision, it can just be incredible and you can feel connected to your teammates and like you've deeply understood the other player's motivations in a way that is very fulfilling. But it's it's something that you have to give a lot of time to to get a lot of experience back. So you have to be willing to kind of know you're going to make a few really tough calls, relatively speaking. Yeah, I think another example of sort of slower games that can be really awesome are really these like high complexity Euro games. So we have here Barrage listed. We've talked about that on the podcast a lot. Uh, We have an episode on it that I highly recommend you check out. And these are games that sort of have turns that involve like a long sequence of things. I think Arc Nova also, we talked about why that can be sort of a slower game too, because even if you're just doing a single action on your turn, there are just a lot of different implications and things to carry out and bonus actions and options that just make that one single action sort of stretch out longer and longer. Is that yeah. what you were thinking about with Barrage? Yeah, absolutely. The The possibility of any given decision has so many implications to consider. And especially because the consequences of your decisions are so important in that game that it can really stretch out. And I think especially too, Jake, Barrage is a game that wants you to feel like you've built something epic on the table, like you talked about earlier. And it, you need time and space to dedicate to that game to do it. So the game length is just fairly long. It, it wants to be a game that asked more of you. And it says, hey, I'm going to ask a two plus hour experience of you, but I'll give a lot back. There's going to be a lot of rewarding strategic decisions with regards to how you navigate this space. And I'm talking literally the space of the board in that yeah. example, right? And it's great, but it's not fast. It's a it's a slow, thinky game where you really have to think through all the considerations and the implications of each decision. And like you said, turns can be long. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this, then that, then this. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, to go back to Jamie's point, for us, it was an example of a game that is the right 
length, length for the game, you know, yeah. because a game that was equally demanding of you just in, ter- in terms of like rules complexity alone, it's like, I wouldn't, would it feel right to you to learn how to play Barrage and then you play it and it's 30 minutes long? It's like, wait, it took me 30 minutes to learn how to play. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you you hit that point because we we knew we wanted to cover it. And the amount of time you invest into something, I think, really does set your expectations around how long it should be. Right. Ark Nova is another great example. Or on the other side of the coin, hey, that's my fish, which plays in five minutes and sets up in five minutes. Yeah, it's like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> something's wrong here. Yeah. yeah. Which is, and that's a bummer because it's such a fun game. Yeah, it's so a long great, as you don't have to set it up. Yeah. It's a great game, but yeah, right. Like, yeah, the the setup and teardown we haven't we don't often talk about because a lot of the games we talk about on this show we are playing mostly online, so we don't have to deal with that so much. But that that is something that you hear a lot on on the table, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. I like this game, but this it just has a lot. The setup is a bear. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Which is part of the investment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In our show notes, Jake, this one's all for you. I, I'm going to, for our listeners, this section is called Slow Games. And I have Feld question mark. So, yeah. Jake, are Feld games slow? I think that for me, I'm kind of a fanboy, right? I really enjoy yeah. a lot of Feld's games. So, for me, they feel middle, right? Like mm. they're a lot slower than I, I think a lot of the games we're thinking about as fast playing games like a Cascadia. Uh, or, you know, if you think of a lot of kind of like the modern hits, yeah, like, I don't know, Living Forest or Isle of Cats, like like games that kind of like get renowned lately, they do feel like they have like a little bit of a slower pace of play than that because there is a good amount of search. You know, you don't always get as many actions per game as you might think for the playtime. But for me, it's kind of like a middle middle. It's like the, a middle time like playtime like it doesn't play fast it doesn't play slow and it's not long it's not short so like for me that is kind of like playing out in the right amount of time for the game yeah though sometimes it can feel like a little too long like castles of burgundy at four players and then it's you know stretching out into like two hours plus I, I, you know, I've heard people criticize the game for that. And I think that's totally fair criticism. And I think that might be why I love In the Year of the Dragon, as far as Felds go, and it's probably my favorite Feld, is partially the way the action selection works in that game uh, with the, uh, basically there's cards that get dealt to the table and there's pairs. And if anyone selects a card within one of those sets of sub cards, it's more expensive to take those actions. So it starts to have that constraint that we were talking about earlier with Cascadia through that mechanism pretty quickly. And you're only making one real decision, maybe two on your turn. So it's one of the faster playing Felds that I've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is a fairly prolific designer. So yeah, uh, I think bonfire is a game that plays surprisingly fast on the table. Yeah. Uh, Also, I think the interesting thing about Feld is a lot of his games like live and die on the action selection mechanism. So that's where a lot of the search is, right? Like, what Mm -hmm. can I do? Uh, And once you've really internalized those systems, the game starts to play a lot faster because then you're just like playing the game. You're not so much thinking like, okay, what is available to me here in this situation? Which speaks to the strong heuristic frameworks that you can build when you play his game. Great point. Yeah. And I think that that's another thing that can make a game feel fast when it previously felt slow, which is kind of an interesting subtalk topic that we haven't gotten into, but we can let you noodle on that listener of kind of how games can become faster the more you play them. 
Yeah. We, we have two more quick examples. I really want to hit. They're kind of the same. Okay. They kind of are the same. But I want to highlight. Okay. One thing about El Grande that I think is similar to Guards of Atlantis, which is simultaneous play. When you're making decisions where everyone's making the decision at the same time, it gives you a lot of potential potential considerations that could slow things down slightly, depending on how willing to go down the donkey space like black hole any given group is of like, I think that you're going to do this, so I'll do this, so then I'll do that. But maybe you know that I'll do that, so I'll do this. Like it, You're either prone to getting lost in that hole or you're not. And I think if you are prone to getting lost in it, I'm raising my hand the games can feel a little slower as you're like, I'm going to solve the puzzle that's really unsolvable. Yeah, yeah. I think simultaneous play in general is one that when you hear that, you think- It's supposed to be fast. Okay, this must make the game play faster, but not always the case. Case, because, Because a lot of times that just, you know- uh, easy paradigm is like is a game that right like everybody's taking a move around the table one 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 or so everybody simultaneously is taking an action and like which is faster it's hard to say because in the, the second choice everybody has to consider or may choose to consider what everybody else might do instead of just seeing what they did and reacting to it yep so I, I think that's a really great example. Also, if a game is like purely simultaneous play, I recently played Earth and I I wouldn't say like I bounced off. I definitely didn't hate it, but it felt, you know, it, it's a, I think one of the strong points of it is it's a faster playing game, like just in terms of runtime yeah. than a lot of the games it's often comp to, like Wingspan. Uh, mm-hmm. People pointed out when we talked about it last time that it's, it has a lot of similarities to Wingspan. But I partly because like you never get the moment in that game to be the star. Everybody's just always looking at their own board, uh, which kind of makes it feel a little bit flat, right? Like, I, you know, people talk about multiplayer solitaire all the time. Uh, and I always like, I don't like that term. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But there I did feel that way a little bit yeah. because I, there's never a moment until the end game scoring where you're like, have any reason really to look around the table and see what other people's tableaus are doing. And I've, I haven't played Earth, but what I hear from you, Jake, too, is that we were talking about pacing and the the variety of turn lengths and structures and complexity earlier. And it sounds like Earth, like metaphorically, might be like reading a 300-page book with no chapters. Just like the turns start to blur together in a way that you don't feel the beats like you do in yeah. a game with turns that go around the table. Yeah, it's like it might be a poster child for that case I was making earlier about like, you know, this is like the extreme edge of a game developed for elegance and streamlined and whatever. Yeah. And it's like, okay, too far. Maybe it's just gone a little bit too far in a few more rough edges that like stick out and, you know, make the game play a little more dynamic would actually be for the good. Yeah. And the last game that plays slow, uh, which is really a big inspiration for this whole topic, is the Mask Trilogy, uh, the Kramer and Kiesling games, Tikal, Kuzgo, Mexica, uh, Javo is the older one. Uh, also, Torres. Torres is sort of the honorary one there. So all these are long action point games, and that brings a level of AP into the game. There's no getting around it. But what they offer is 
I think, really fun dynamic turns that you don't get in a lot of more modern streamlined games. Like you really have the ability on your turn to make a move that dynamically shifts the whole board for everybody, right? It changes everything. And pulling off a move like that, where you've just like used your action point allotment so skillfully to change the board state and you know pull off a massive point swing in your favor is really satisfying and really fun and i have found the trade-off of having a little bit more downtime especially when i can be like thinking and planning this type of moves well worth it for the fun experience of gameplay that is offered in these games that it wouldn't I think the mass trilogy and the the way that they are structured in terms of their slow play is a little bit like getting lost in a maze of decisions every turn. And there's something just innately fun about sometimes getting lost in a maze that is why I think as like human culture, at least in the United States, right? Like in North America, there's like corn mazes that go up every year. Like we just like complex puzzles to solve sometimes. And I think that all the points that you made, Jake, plus the like, it's fun every turn to solve the complex puzzle of what should I be doing? It's just, it offers, it's kind of like another example would be like, Cascadia is kind of like potato chips in terms of what it offers or the fast playing games. And the Mass Trilogy and the Slower playing games sometimes are more like a braised stew like there's a depth and richness to what is there as long as you have the time to invest and are okay with sitting around for a while for it to cook yeah absolutely well brendan i think that brings us towards the end of this episode but i do want to hear your final thoughts i mean we've covered a lot of ground on this topic uh it wasn't always perfect it wasn't always probably super clear but i think it was a really fun discussion i hope listeners got a lot out of it but what are you sitting with now how does this conversation that we've just had feel in your body what are your takeaways it feels amazing i want to keep having more conversations like this one i feel like this was really like you said jake a return to form in some ways to some of our old what we talk about and i think that it's making me realize that there's even more room to explore that like the the implications of pacing and rate of decisions and the ratio of decisions to investment and rules within the podcast. And I'm so excited that, you know, 132 episodes in, there's still like so much untamed ground in terms of the decision space of a game for us to like explore. And that's, that's a lot of fun. How about you? Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation too. Um, I think the thing I'm sitting with is just, you know, really this idea that like games are awesome. I think games are, you know, continuing to build upon what came before in a really exciting way. And, you know, I think that the, we talked about a lot of reasons why, you know, fast playing games are really great and fit into people's lives in a way that, you know, older style of, and obviously not every old game plays slow on the table. I recently played a choir for the first time, the Sid Saxon classic It clips along, plays an hour, super fun time. So, you know, we're talking in in broad generalities here. But yeah, I think I think that's that's great. I think that's well and good. And I also think that there are a lot of interesting things that games can do outside of the bounds of like being a game that plays really fast. Yeah. And I hope that people listening to this maybe take a second to reflect on, you know, games they've played recently and maybe just stop and say, like, is this good because it's fast or <laughs> is it fast because it's good, maybe? Yeah, yeah. That's great, Jake. I Thanks for leaving us with that. I think, dang, this is good. This is why people love these episodes. 
I, as we pivot to the sort of closing, past closing thoughts, I want to remark on episode 131 real quickly. There's two quick updates. One, uh, we wanted to mention that, uh, you know, we did a whole episode on Can't Stop and we forgot to mention, we have a strategy article on decisionspacepodcast.com called Six Tips to Stop the Camp Competition in Can't Stop, written by uh, Aurora Anara. That is an awesome uh, distillation of all of the decisions you're making in that game. So if you enjoyed that episode, if you enjoy Can't Stop, or if you want to learn more about Can't Stop and its decisions without just delving in and playing it, I think this article is the best place to start. Again, you can find Aurora's article on decisionspacepodcast.com uh, and just click on the articles tab. The other quick note I want to make, Jake, is kind of a, oops, I messed up. <laughs> I was using a word throughout the episode, which I'm sure most listeners kind of gleaned what I meant, but I was using it wrong to the definition. So I said the word affordances a lot, as if like, can you afford this thing? That's not actually how the word affordances, that's not the definition. Uh, the word I was really searching for, and I think in my heart of hearts, I knew this, was something like allowances or tolerance. Uh, how much does the game allow you to mess up or tolerate you messing up before it breaks, before you bust? Uh, so my forgiveness for, or my apologies for using the word affordance when I really meant allowance or tolerance. I hope you forgive me. I forgive you. That is all for this week's episode of Decision Space. Thank you so much for listening along to the very end. It means a ton to us. You can find more Decision Space stuff on decisionspacepodcast.com. We've already shilled our Patreon and Instagram page, so maybe we can leave it there with the shilling until next week. But I want to shove <laughs> Never mind. No, no, no. I just want to say for all of our listeners who've made it this far, we're playing Arc Nova a lot. We're going to cover that on the show coming up. And then also as a secret special surprise for you staying this long, we just want to let you know that we've been playing Santa Monica and Torres a lot. We don't know if we're going to cover them in a deep dive, but like we've been playing them. We might. Who They're pretty knows? awesome. They're pretty yeah. cool. And as always, we'll thank Henry for our intro and outro song. Reach out and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.